this, the theme this year, as you know, is, is elevate your life, taken from Ephesians 2 and 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, theologically, this tells me that I'm already raised up with Christ and I'm seated, which is a term that has to do with rule. And I'm in the heavenly realms in Christ. Yet, when you look at me very clearly, I'm standing here on terra firma, as you are. Which means there can be variation then, or there can be dissonance between what is a theological position and what is your experiential reality. Can I say it like that? That is, God can say, you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I see when I see you. You can look in the mirror and say, woe is me. (laughs) But God sees the righteousness of, of Christ. Amen. God sees forgiven. We look in the mirror and see struggling. God sees complete in Christ. We look in the mirror and see some work that needs to be done. The Bible says that he supplies all of our needs in Christ Jesus. We look in a bank account and say, hmm, Lord, could you help me out a little bit this week, you know? Which means that there often, as I said, is there some dissonance between your present reality and what God has spoken over your life. Now, having said that, what is significant here and what is important is that we understand that not everything that God called you to be or called you to walk in is manifest as soon as you get saved. This was one of the most important things I learned in my life in terms of serving God. One of the most important things that I've ever learned is that it takes a while to walk it out and see it manifest. Religion has a tendency to make you believe the opposite of what I'm telling you now. And partly that's because we give you all of these three-point plans, four-point plans, five-point plans on how to get saved Thus lending to the impression that when you walk through our little formula, you now finished your task. That's not true. Whenever you come to Christ, you're just beginning the process of becoming a disciple, a student. You're learning. You're growing. And the reason that I'm stressing this is when I first got saved, I thought if you had authority, you had authority, you had authority. Not so. I thought if you had authority over anything, you had authority over everything. And it was important that I was able to learn what was the truth about this for several reasons. Number one, if I look in the scripture and I see that I have authority over all these things and it's not manifest in my life, then I have to ask myself why. And the enemy beats a lot of us up by making us feel like second-class citizens and inferior. Why don't you measure up, you know? The other question that I, I, I see that is important about this is that if I know it's a growing process, then I can ask the question, how do I grow? How do I stay in process? As you've heard me say before, in the West, meaning the Western Hemisphere, the Western culture, Most of us have been taught about events and not processes. It's all about getting the event right. The event is the big thing. 
in the Eastern culture, and Jesus was from Eastern cultures, the process is what is right. You get that correct, the event always turns out right. So I'm teaching now that you can have authority over one thing and not over another. Now that is eye-opening. And when I recognized this and came to understand this about God, that was revelational. That I could have authority over something and not have authority over something else but could grow into that if I took the time to seek revelation and how to walk that out. So I'm right now in Luke 1 or 9 and verse 1 when Jesus called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And Mark 5, beginning in verse 1, there is this profoundly moving and disturbing text. This is the story of the demoniac in the tombs of Gadara. This is the story that they based all of these horror movies and flicks on like The Exorcist. They all grew out of this one story. This man whose life is tormented and he is controlled, he is living a nightmare and listen to the story as it's read. They came to the other side of the sea. Jesus came out of the boat. Immediately there met him a man of the to- out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. He had his dwellings among the tombs and no one could bind him, not with chains. He had often been bound, chains had been pulled apart by him, shackles broken, neither could anyone tame him, and always listen to this pathetic, pitiful story. Always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him and cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Does that sound like worship to you? It said he ran and worshipped him. But instead of worship, he's saying, What have I have to do with you? This hideous, grotesque, hoarse, twisted voice of a demonic spirit is speaking from within this man. And the man had gone to worship Christ. But instead of worship, he's saying, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Go away. Jesus had said to this unclean spirit and the man come out of him. And then Jesus asked, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion for we are many. He begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. The spirit that was the leader of these other demons inside of him because a legion is, was literally several thousand. And there was a large herd of swine feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons, see the plurality here, begged him saying, send us into the swine. And Jesus did that. The unclean spirits entered the swine, about 2,000. They ran violently down a steep place, drowned into the sea, drowned in the sea. And those who fed the swine, the pigs fled in terror and went into the city and told it in the city that was located in that region. And everybody in the city went out to see the circus. And they came to Jesus 
and Saul, the man that had been demon-possessed, that had terrorized their communities, that they were afraid of. They were the ones that put these chains on him that he had broken. That meant that he was a threat to their community. They saw this guy sitting clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them what had happened to him who had been demon-possessed, and the people began to plead with Jesus to leave. Now that is an enigma if you've ever seen one. Here is a man who is crusted with dried blood, hair disheveled, matted, filthy, naked, broken pieces of chains on his wrist and on his ankles, crying and wailing in the darkness of the night, more comfortable sleeping among moldering bones in a cemetery than he was being with living people. And instead of them rejoicing that this man has been set free, they turned to Jesus who set him free and said, would you please leave? Boy, that's a strange response. And so I'm talking today about the fifth level of spiritual authority, first being authority over self, the second authority within a family structure, the third, we talked about authority over secular affairs, we talked about authority within a ministry structure, and now we're talking about authority within a demonic structure or over a demonic structure. And I want to deal with this today. I want to get down to some things that I feel like are important that we, as the people of God, must understand. I'm about to, to launch into some other things here in the next couple of weeks where I'll be talking about authority over finances and things like that. But you don't get there until you deal with some of this first. And everybody wants to skip right over the other and go right to authority with a fat bank account, you know and so I've got to delineate and differentiate it between the terms. I love language. I love language. I wish that I were a linguist. I could speak many languages. I don't. Part of the reason is, is because growing up in Louisiana, French Louisiana, I was going to learn French naturally, the way people, children learn it, the way your kids learn a language. If you're Hispanic or any other culture that you may represent, they learn it naturally in the home. Uh, my mother, uh, her people, all Cajun French. Many of them did not speak any English at all. My grandmother and grandfather Croker, who lived right next door to my granddad, my grandmom, Clarence Patin Falk was my granddad, as you've heard me mention. That's as Cajun as you get. And it, right next door to him lived the Crokers. We lived out in the swamps in Louisiana when I was just a little old guy. And you could not help but pick up some words of French because the croakers who lived next door didn't speak any English at all. And the language spoken in the home was French. And when I would say a few words of French that I picked up naturally that way, you know that I've got my bottom swatted a number of times. <laughs> and they said, you do not speak that. And then I'm listening to them talking. And I would say, why? I remember one time we were eating and I made, some, I, I, 
said something they said in French. And instead of them like, oh, isn't that cute? You know, <laughs> they swatted me. Don't you do that. Don't you speak that language. Nowadays, everybody's proud of their culture and wants to speak the language of their culture. Back then, it was different. And the reason they said is, is because the languages are constructed different. And they would use the old time-worn expression that the Frenchman trying to speak English would say, he threw the cow over the fence some hay. When he should have said, he threw the hay over the fence to the cow. Because when you properly translate from the French into the English, that's the way it's constructed. Same thing with the Spanish. They put adjectives in different places within the sentence. The reason that Spanish is that way as well is all of that's based, that's one of the Romance languages based upon Latin from that part of Europe. They would not let me learn. Now I regret that so much. I wish that I had known and could have grown up speaking French, Spanish, any number of others. You see, it's not too late. As many countries, I was in my 100th country this week. That's too many languages to learn now. <laughs> but I found out this, that it is important to clarify terms. I said all of that to say this. Many people think that when we deal with demonic spirits, we're talking about somebody writhing on the floor, hissing like a snake, and that's the extent of what demonic spirits are all about. I contend that demonic systems are much bigger than that. To show you the importance of understanding terms, they just had a conference the other day in London, England <clears throat> on linguistics. And the subject of this one particular session was, and there was actually, there was a, a contest among the linguists there, and the subject was complete or finished. Are they the same or not? The word complete, the word finished, are they the same? Think about it. In many ways they are, many ways they're not. What you might not realize is no English dictionary has been able to adequately explain the difference between complete and finished. In this recent linguistic conference held in London, England, I'm not making this up, and attended by some of the best scholars in the world, Sam Sundar Balgobin, a Guyanese, was the clear winner. His final challenge in this this was, some say there is no difference between complete and finished. The judges asked the panel, the, the contestants, to please explain the difference between complete and finished in a way that is easy to understand. Think about it, complete and finished. That's more of a challenge explaining than you might realize. Here was his astute answer. When you marry the right woman, you are complete. When you marry the wrong woman, you are finished. It's even better. When the right one catches you with the wrong one, you're completely finished. <laughs> Isn't that neat? Boy, there's somebody that has thought it through. Amen. He received a standing ovation that lasted five minutes. And the Queen of England actually invited him to Buckingham Palace for dinner as a result of, of his answer. There are several things in these verses that, that we want to talk about. First, Father, I ask you to speak a word to us today. Open our understanding and give us insight in a way that will be profound and enlightening that we might, as your people, demonstrate authority over demonic systems. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. 
Several things we need to notice. The man, as I've already pointed out, came running to Jesus to worship him, but instead of worship being what he did, this voice inside began to say, leave us alone. Secondly, the thing that I would like for you to notice, the second thing, is that the demonic spirits, when Jesus said, come out of this man, readily agreed to come out of the man, but did not want to leave the area. Don't make us leave this area. They didn't want to go away. That was their place. Obviously, their assignment was targeted at a specific geographic area. I do believe that the enemy assigns in the kingdom of darkness specific areas for certain assignments to be taken care of or fulfilled. For example, you can question what might happen in a genocide in Africa or Asia and say, we are enlightened above that here. Not so. Could be that's the assignment of an enemy, a genocidal spirit that has been positioned there and could have been positioned here instead. So just understand that. Thirdly, observe that the people did not rejoice over the deliverance of this pathetic, pitiful man who has lost so much. The amount of human suffering that this man experienced is unfathomable. Crying constantly day and night. Cutting himself with stones. More comfortable among the dead than among the living. Wanting to end his life and get it over with. Kept alive by these spirits. This man is set free. You would think that sympathetic neighbors would say, did you hear about what happened to the guy in the tombs? We don't have to worry about that guy anymore. Arresting him, putting chains and shackles on him. No, did you hear what happened? Jesus came and delivered him. You would think that would be the response. I mean, these days, people feel sympathy over a bird that breaks its wing. But this man gets no sympathy at all. Jesus had upset their system. Why were these people unsympathetic? Why did they want him to leave? Instead of them being happy, they said, would you please leave? We don't want you here anymore. This man's deliverance literally affected their economy, and there are a few clues that I want you to see here. The question is, why did they ask Jesus to leave after he delivered the demoniac? Another question, why were these spirits so territorial that they didn't want to leave? These two things, to answer these two questions, seem to indicate that the demoniac of Gadara was not only possessed, but one of the spirits possessing him was the ruling principality of that region. That it had taken up residence in him. What you need to understand when you talk about the spirit dimension is that Spirits are fallen angels that were cast out of heaven where they had visibility, they were seen, they lived in a dimension that is like this dimension where you have a body that is seen by others. They lived in a realm where they were visible. When they were cast out into another dimension, they became disembodied spirits looking for some place to now live to take up residence in. We know that they wanted an earthly body to live in because when Jesus said, leave this man, their plaintive cry was, can we go into this herd of pigs? 
And people ask the question, can something other than a human being be demon-possessed? I think that's the answer to that right there, isn't it? I mean, they went into this man, the, the, from the man into the herd of swine. And this suicidal spirit caused them all to rush down a steep place and drown themselves in the sea. Now, what you need to, to realize is swine were the basis of the economy of that region. Okay, raising pigs was what they did. This was not Israel where swine were considered an unclean animal. And so what Jesus did upset their economy, which then gives one insight into this fact that demonic systems can actually support the economy of an area. Oh, come on, stay with me now. Amen. The societal structure can come to depend upon it, which is what actually happened in this case. The enemy can work his way into a society to such a degree that systems become influenced by him and become a part of his demonic system. Governmental structures can become a part of a governmental of a demonic system. And I don't think anybody here would doubt that the regime or government of Hitler was obviously demonic. I mean, we could go to any number of other cases, as I've already mentioned, Pol Pot, Khmer Rouge, Cambodia. Do I need to go on? Stalin, who killed over 30 million of his own people, the communist system, can a governmental system then be infiltrated by demonic spirits that use these systems to achieve their purposes? What are their purposes? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If he can use a governmental system, why not an educational system? Why not use education to program God right out of people? Why not use an entertainment system to make things that are not righteous and good become desirable to a public or to a society. Nobody here would doubt that pornographic entertainment is obviously inspired of the enemy. Then why can't we go a step beyond that and say, what about systems that, that promote godlessness? Yeah. When you start looking at this, you find out that the enemy is more than just somebody writhing on the ground, hissing like a snake. That sometimes the enemy is much more subtle than that and that systems can come to, to depend upon these structures that are set up by him. He infiltrates them. I'd go a step beyond that. If we all, and I think we do, agree that, that drug smuggling and this multi-billion dollar business that goes on every year that enslaves people and crack cocaine and other types of drugs and, and methamphetamines and all of this stuff that's pushed and across our borders, the lives that are wrecked, would we agree that that's demonic in nature? Yeah, you see too much human wreckage left in its wake. Too many people that had bright, promising lives that ended up, their lives crushed and ruined, dead, shot, killed, prostitution, robbery. All kind of things that happen to support a habit like that. If we can agree that that is the case, let me go a step beyond that. Anything that keeps somebody from an encounter with God, whose objective is to make sure you don't find God, you don't have to pull the cover and lid back very far till you will find out Satan is inspiring that in one way or another. Even if it's religion. 
Oh, I needed a better response there. Because if I can give you a good dose of religion and keep you from ever knowing God, that works just like drugs. Or how about this? Anything that causes you pain, maybe even banking systems can be set up in such a way that you get enslaved to a system. I remember a song. Boy, this comes back from long ago. Tennessee Ernie Ford. There's a name blast from the past. Anybody remember that name? You owe 16 tons. and you, What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Load 16 times, something other. I don't remember how it went. The point being that if you get enslaved in any kind of a system that keeps you from being who God called you to be, you become a slave to interest. To somebody driving a limousine on Fifth Avenue in New York City because your house is being repossessed. Any system that brings this kind of pain and suffering is not godly in its origin or concept. And this is where I'm going with this. Jesus always addressed the spirit behind the problem. Christians have not learned to do that. We address the problem. We address the guy writhing on the floor. Rightly so, he needs deliverance. But it's a system that got him enslaved. And if you don't fix a system... You see what's going on? And to this whole thing about disembodied spirits, not only did Jesus demonstrate that spirits are looking for a place to to live or set up domicile in this story by allowing them to go into the swine. What about where he said when he cast a spirit out that it goes out in dry places and comes back to its original habitation? And finds it swept and empty. You see, it's one thing to cast it out. It's something else to fill it up again. With what's right. Amen. Just praying for somebody to get delivered from drugs isn't enough. They need something to replace what they're getting off of. I really am going, I really am going to preach something here. But I, I'm laying as it were, a construct, creating a construct, laying a foundation for you to see this. And so Jesus said that spirit that was cast out goes and gets seven others worse than himself and comes back to take up residence in that individual it went out of. What does that mean? These spirits were looking for a place that they could find residence. And in this world in which we live, Satan is an alien, an illegal alien. Let me say it another way. He doesn't have a green card. Amen. And he's looking for a way to set up domicile and residence here. Jesus always addressed the spirit behind the problem. He didn't say to the man, get your life straightened up. He said to the spirit, leave the man. The man came to worship. But instead of worship, words like, leave us alone came out of the man's mouth. That's what you hear society saying. Amen. So the man could not be helped unless Jesus helped the guy behind, uh, uh, took care of the problem behind him. Amen. We must take authority as the church. This is where the real issue of authority is at. 
We have to take authority over systems. Systems. Amen. The problem is we have, as the modern church, have borrowed a page from the playbook of the world and tried to bring about change by doing things the way the world brings about change. Like marching and protesting and emails to the senators and all of this. And I am not against that, so don't misunderstand me. I've mentioned this on several occasions and I'm sure there's always someone that, that takes us to the wrong conclusion and says, Pastor doesn't believe in that. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you can write emails and march until you're blue in the face. But if you don't deal with the problem behind the problem, you're not going to really bring about fundamental change. You watching it? Because when Jesus dealt with the problem behind the problem, they went out of the man and went into the herd of swine. You just chase it out of one situation, it doesn't leave the area, it goes somewhere else. I'm preaching a lot better right now than some of you are responding. Preach, Pastor, thank you, I think I will. Amen. Listen, I'm serious about this. Until we as the church, and we're the only ones that have the legitimate right to do so, address the issues behind what's going on, nothing is going to change. It may change on the surface, and like one of these prairie dogs in a West Texas prairie dog town, pop down one hole to pop up another, but it's still there. The problem hasn't gone away. And so, while I'm not opposed to those things, I need you to understand, ultimately, that the strategy for unseating demonic systems goes deeper than writing an email to your senator. Please continue to write. It goes deeper than marching in any kind of a protest in front of an abortion clinic. That's your, your thing and your way of addressing a problem. Please continue to do it. But the bottom line is simply this. The Apostle Paul never once organized a march against Rome. Never led a protest or signed a petition. And he lived during the time of the one of the most wicked regimes in all of history. What Paul encouraged people to do that were believers was exercise their authority and power in prayer to address the problem behind the problem. Amen. So did Jesus when he said that we should pray, thy kingdom come, Matthew 6 and 10, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The solution was not to try to force people in positions that could do this or this to make the decision favorable to our belief system wasn't to force them to embrace our values. The solution was to deal with a God that could deal with them and could bring about true change. They didn't try to force the world to become believers. They knew they could move the hand that could move the world. Oh, and that's, that's something right there now. Amen. They also believed that by living the values of, a, of an authentic Christian life, they would impact their world and that it would want to change by showing them something better. Amen. And that's where Christians, I think, have been lacking. We have not utilized strategies that were directed toward the problem behind the problem. And sometimes we haven't put on our best face. We haven't let people know how good what we have really is. 
Amen. Before we can address these forces, we must first be able to discern them. And that's been a part of the struggle that the modern church confronts today. Its inability to recognize the face of the enemy is obvious. He is the, are you ready for this? Ultimate shape shifter. The enemy changes shapes. In eternity past, he was the anointed angel that led heaven in worship before Jehovah God. In Genesis, he is the serpent that deceived mankind in the garden. There are no two things farther apart than that. In Matthew, he is the tempter. In Mark, he is the strong man. In Luke, he is Beelzebub. In the Gospel of John, he's the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. In 2 Corinthians, he's the deceiver that transforms himself into an angel of light. In 1 Corinthians, he is the wicked one. Simon Peter saw him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Early in the book of Revelation, he's the accuser of the brethren. By Revelation 10, he's the great dragon. By Revelation 13, he's the beast. What does all of this mean? It means he wears whatever mask he needs to wear to achieve his objective in society. Amen. It's not uncommon for people today to even be so deceived as to believe that, that the enemy doesn't even exist. Try right. And they think that any talk of a malevolent, evil force called the devil is mere superstition based in ignorance and a lack of education. That if you can get a little more educated, surely you will know there isn't any such thing. That all of the wrongs in our world can be solved by education. They keep saying that until some kid walks into a school in New Jersey and shoots a bunch of people. And all of a sudden, they start using the four-letter word E-V-I-L again. There is an enemy out there that doesn't want you to discern his presence. Amen. And we must not become so desensitized that we fail to see the evil that lurks around us. And this is why I'm saying that it can be in systems and in structures that are set up that perpetuate the wrong. So how does the Christian go about trying to bring demonic systems under the control of the kingdom of God? First thing you've got to do is you've got to offer something better. I need somebody to just shout this word, better. Better. You need to know we have a better hope than the world has. Uh, you can't take a man's drugs away unless you give him something better. He's not going to lay down alcohol until he gets something better. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb of God. We've got to give him something better. We've got to offer more comfort than alcohol does, more highs than do drugs, more hope than ill-gotten gains, and deeper relationships than one night stands. <laughs> to just stand and preach against something is not enough. I need to tell you, lay that down. I've got something better called Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Not only that, that's why we gotta, we've got to get a, a better perspective and grip on this whole thing. You can't cast stones at the economic system the devil has put in place when we're always broke and disgusted and can't be trusted ourselves. Who's going to listen to you? Nobody. Amen. You know the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. That's the way life is. Which is why we have to learn how to move from being at one level to until we permeate every and saturate every level of society. Tell somebody we've got to be salt. Would you do that? Secondly, we've got to, if we're going to bring demonic systems under control, we've got to learn to live in obedience to God ourselves. Hmm. You can't tell the devil get gone when he's not even gone out of your life yet. I don't mean I to make anybody uncomfortable, but I'm sending forth a call today to pursue God with all of your heart because we need to fight the good fight of faith. How do we come into obedience? We've got to bring our own flesh, our own emotions, our own thoughts, our own attitudes under control. Uh-huh. Just as you cannot have authority within a secular system without first having authority within your family, and just as you can't have authority in your family if you don't have authority over yourself. Let me just take a little side note. You can't tell your kids what to do if you don't do what's right yourself. You must also have authority over ministry structures before you can have authority over demonic systems. That's why I taught on it in this, in this particular sequential order. You have to have authority over ministry structures before you can over demonic systems. That's just another way of saying that if the church doesn't have its house in order, devil ain't going to listen to us when we try to tell him to get his house in order. Oh, come on. I, I, I'm, really, I'm really nailing something home right now. You can't take control over the kingdom of darkness if the church doesn't have its own house in order. And that's why it's necessary for us to understand there are different levels of authority. Amen. Thirdly, we take control over demonic systems through prayer and fasting with insight. Jesus in John 28 and 29, or rather Mark, Mark 9, 28 through 29, the gospel of St. Mark, verses 28 and through 29, answers a question. He has cast the spirit out of a boy on the side of the Mount of Transfiguration that the disciples had tried to address, but had failed. And so they came to him afterward and said, why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said, this kind doesn't go out, but by prayer, say it, prayer. Come on, say it, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting, that's got to be something we get back into as the church in this modern era. Amen. You can't do it through legislation. He didn't say this kind doesn't come out unless you sign a petition. Or get you a placard and march in a protest. Or send an email. Uh -uh. He said this kind comes out when the church fasts and prays. Why? Because when you fast and pray, you bring yourself under subjection. And when you bring this under subjection, you got a right to tell the devil, in the name of Jesus, I'm the body of Christ. Get out of my way. 
the other things that I've mentioned, protest and email, those are tools. But you even have to be qualified to use them. Amen. Just because you know what a scalpel is doesn't mean I'm going to let you do surgery on me. Hello? You cannot control demonic systems through just education. Understand, I've been in school all of my life and still am. Many of you are also, and I believe in the importance of education, but education alone cannot deliver mankind. I say that because as we become more educated, it seems the educational system tells us more and more there is no God, there are no spirits, everything can be solved by education until they finally mess up and something goes haywire like these kids at Columbine and then they're crying for help. Amen. What am I trying to point out here? I'm saying that we as Christians don't need to buy into this stuff where I even hear some Christian leaders ridicule believers who still believe in praying for the sick. I'm serious. They ridicule people for praying for the sick, believing in fasting and prayer, believing in casting out demons. We don't do that stuff here. Oh, really? (laughs) No, I'm not even going to say what came to mind right there. Just leave it right there. I know you don't. Amen. Why do prayer and fasting work? They demonstrate to the enemy that you have authority over self. And if you have authority over self, you can have authority over demonic systems. Amen. It prepares you. You don't twist God's arm. There's a fallacy of instruction that needs to be corrected that exists among believers today that if I fast and pray, I'm putting pressure on God. No, you're not. You're putting pressure on your flesh. You're not changing God's mind. He wants the kingdom to come more than you do. You say, I'm fasting and praying so I can be healed. Oh, if God had just healed me. Hey, in case you don't know it, there are stripes upon the holy back of the Son of God for your healing. You don't have to convince him. They were put there before you were born. Amen. You're not twisting God's army. What fasting and prayer does for us is what happened with Gideon's army of 300. You see, you don't need the biggest army in the world. You don't need the biggest group in the world, the loudest, the noisiest, the one with the most publicity. You don't need the one with the greatest social network. All you need is a few committed believers who are willing to give themselves. I preached on the campus in Kassan, Russia, the university campus, where, Karl, where, where Lenin started the Marxist revolution. Preached there. 17 men, that's what he started with. 17 students before he was done, one-third of the world. All you need are people who are dedicated to the same cause. Amen. And Gideon's band of 300 went forth. Where's their <laughs> mighty arsenal of weapons? They've got a pitcher with a torch inside that's hidden, and they've got not a sword. Amen. They've got a trumpet. Now, what do you do? 300 guys going to fight an army that's so big you can't even count them all. 300 guys. I mean, this looks, you know, makes Sparta look like it's, you know, kindergarten nursery. 300 guys going out to fight this army, and they didn't even have a sword or a shield. They had nothing but a clay pitcher with a torch in it that was hidden and a trumpet. Now, what are you going to do about that? I'm here. Goose the guy with the torch. Uh Uh-uh. 
You know what happened when they broke the clay pitcher? The light on the inside began to shine through. That's what fasting and prayer does. It breaks the clay pitcher that the glory of God that is inside of us can shine through. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the glory may be of God and not of us. Amen. We've been given power over all the power of the enemy. And so what am I saying today? I'm calling to the church, arise. We need to begin this season in the summer with fasting and prayer. One reason that I personally do not spend a lot of time saying, okay, everybody's going to fast. Who's going to fast Monday, Tuesday? You know why? I want it to become a lifestyle among believers. And what is fasting? Fasting is denying the body. And there are even misconceptions as to how this is supposed to work. Somebody said, oh, you didn't fast. You didn't fast 40 days or 30. Look, some people have medical conditions. They can't fast like that anymore. Some of them are going to have to eat something. The bottom line is all of us can still say no to the flesh in one form or another. You can give something up. Daniel did. Daniel ate no pleasant food. He continued to eat things that were bland, but he denied his body the satisfaction of having foods that were rich, enjoyable. Why? He was telling this flesh, hey, you, get yourself under control. You're here as a child of God in a foreign place. You're here to set up the kingdom and stand for righteousness. And because he did that for 21 days, a prayer that, and a fasting campaign like I've just described, where he just didn't, didn't eat pleasant food for 21 days. After 21 days, do you know what happened? Gabriel himself showed up. You can, this is the point I, I need to make. You can move God if you can move your flesh out of the way. I'm talking to some of you that have family situations that are grief, that are grief filled and, 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 and stricken and broken. Some of us have relatives, sons, daughters, wives, husbands, or whatever that are in the grip of the enemy. And we want to look at them and say, you straighten up your life. And what we need to do is look at the enemy behind them and say, you get your hands off of him. And some of them are probably even here in this service right now because they come to church, they're hungry. They want something. It's just when the time comes for them to say yes, instead of saying yes, they say, no, leave me alone. That's not what they want to say. It's something inside of them that don't want to let them go. Deal with a boy that's making them do all of that. Deal with a guy behind it. Deal with a problem behind the problem. Hello, you don't have authority to tell him to get out of the way until you've got authority over yourself. Oh, Lord, I feel the Holy Ghost working in this room right now. Over the course of a weekend, or course of a week, we have two services on Wednesday night, one on Friday, one on Saturday, four on Sunday morning, one on Sunday afternoon, and the occasional Sunday night service. We have several thousands of believers here. 11 children's churches going on this Sunday morning. What would happen if all of us decided to just spend some time fasting and praying? We could impact this city. We could impact this city. I said we could impact this city. I realize that the flesh doesn't like it. 
I know the flesh doesn't like it. My flesh doesn't like it. But sometimes you got to look in the mirror and say, you get out of the way because I'm here for a reason. There's altogether too much cancer in Houston, Texas. I'm serious. There's altogether too much cancer in Houston, Texas, let alone drugs and alcohol and everything else. The church has authority. You say, but those are illnesses. I'll deal with authority over disease later in this series. But remember, not all disease is actually disease. Because Jesus found a woman with a spirit of infirmity. It mimicked the physical symptoms of a certain disease. And you could have given her Tylenol till there was no more in Houston. You could have given her ciproflaxin and everything else, and it wouldn't have fixed her because it wasn't physical, it was spiritual. And Jesus commanded the spirit to come out of her. Mm. Let the church arise and take its place. Amen. We need miracles. Amen. Signs and wonders. Yes, we do. You see, I've seen some of that. Yes, some of it, I know people have all kinds of substitutes when the real thing is not around. But I've seen some things that they were a sign and they made you wonder. <laughs> God doesn't always do it the way you think it ought to be done. You do not want to miss here. All of the men? All of the men? Men? Any men in the house? Come on, any men in the house? Okay, I want to preach to you next weekend. I want to tell you as how the head of the family to take everything back the enemy's stolen from you. Stolen from your family. I need somebody to high five another man and say, I'm taking it back. Would you do that right now? Come on, men. Find another man and high five him and say, I'm taking it back. I'm a man of God. I was sent to this place for this hour. Amen. Next Sunday is Father's Day. You don't want to miss that. Turn to somebody and say, man up. Would you do that? Amen. Life application points. How do you use what I'm preaching? What should you do if you're being oppressed by the enemy or someone in your family is being oppressed? To begin with, Fast and pray for yourself. You don't have to wait for Brother Wonderful to come do it for you. You have authority. Number two, know what the scripture says about Satan being already defeated and begin to proclaim the truth in your world. What's your world? That's the four walls you live in. That's the car you drive. That's the office you work at. In your world, proclaim the truth. Satan is a liar. He's defeated. He is a fallen foe. You have already received victory over him in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a revelation. Jesus didn't even have to tell Satan to go away when he was tempted by the evil one in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. All Jesus had to do was declare the word and Satan couldn't stand to stay. 
Not once did Jesus say, would you please leave? No, everything Satan threw out, Jesus gave him a word. This is what the scripture says. Satan said, I'm out of here, see ya. Amen. You want the devil to leave your life? Start quoting the word instead of your feelings and your circumstances. Speak the word. Turn to somebody, say, speak the word. Amen. Close any doors, number three, that may have opened that give the enemy a place to act in your life. Ephesians 4 and 27, do not give place to the devil. That's what the New New King James says. I like what the NIV says, though. It says, do not give the devil a foothold. Hey, that's cool. (laughs) Don't give the devil a foothold. Quit doing things that dishonor God and open doors in your life that don't need to be open. And then number four, do the things that entitle you to the legal right to put the enemy in his place. That is to say, get your house in order so you can have the right to tell the enemy to get gone. You can't change the banking system in America or the world if you don't even pay tithe. And a holy hush descended on the house of God. I do love the old joke. That when it came time to take up the offering, the pastor was building up to it and said, this church has crawled long enough and this church has got to move beyond crawling. We're going to get up and walk. And the deacon said, yes, Reverend, let her walk. And he said, when this church has learned to walk, we're going to start to run. And they really got excited and said, yes, Reverend, help us to run. And he reached out and got his offering basket and set it out and said, for this church to run, it's going to take money. And a holy hush descended. And way in the back, one old deacon said, let her crawl, Rev, let her crawl. (laughs) I tell you, I have too much fun doing this. I do. I, I have a blast. Amen. I love what I do. Number five, do not live in fear of the devil. He thrives in a climate of fear. You have authority over the enemy. They got a movie coming out, World War Z. Is that what it is? Brad Pitt, zombies is what I understand. I've never understood these movies. Zombies. You could lay down, take a nap, get up, cook supper, go take another nap, take a shower, and still get out of his way before he can get to you. I'm serious. And we, I can't sleep. I watched a zombie movie. You have authority over the enemy. Don't live in fear. And finally, number six, trust the finished work of Christ. The blood works. Somebody just say it. The blood works. Come on, say it. The blood works. The blood works. The blood works. The blood is to the devil what kryptonite is to Superman. He don't want to get anywhere near it. Stand with me if you would, please. Authority over demonic systems. You have been given authority. Come and join me if you would, please.